Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AQ78, Humor, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 184, December 14, 1988. Well, tonight Otto Scott and I are going to discuss a very different subject from those we have been discussing over the months and years. It's going to be an evening on humor. Now, humor can be and is variously defined. And I suppose uh, we have to say, like Freud finally did, that uh, humor cannot be defined. What constitutes humor varies with different people. But I want to say there can be such a thing as a malicious sense of humor and an affectionate one. I'm going to uh, tell a story which uh, indicates that Humor can be uh, a lovable perspective on human foibles. Now, one of the things some of us, like Otto and myself, were of a respectable age, uh, have occasional problems with is uh, forgetting something. And we are sometimes also told that our memory is selective because we remember what we want to. <laughs> well, I have a story about an elderly couple. A man was not feeling too well, ailing a bit. And this morning he woke up and he told his wife, he said, Honey, I just don't feel well this morning and I don't feel like breakfast. But I would like, and I think it would help me greatly, if you would bring me a dish of ice cream. And as she put on a robe and went out the door, he said, uh, put some uh, chocolate on it. And then he called out uh, a second later and sprinkled some nuts on it. And he waited about 10, 15 minutes, and his wife came in with a tray and uh, some scrambled eggs and a cup of coffee. And he looked after her and bellowed, Woman, can't you remember anything? You forgot the toast. <laughs> you made that up. No, I did not. <laughs> well, why don't you tell yours about the accident? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I read that, and I thought of you when I read it. I thought, this is, this is a Rush Dooney joke. You know, this man was driving very sedately through a green light in an intersection, and a woman in a car with 14 kids plowed right into his side. And he got out, and he said, what's the matter with you? He said, don't you know when to stop? She said, they're not all mine. <laughs> Well, now, uh, to me, that's good humor because it's not malicious, it's kindly, and it's an affectionate laughter at human foibles. And I think that tells us one of our problems today. We don't have any good humor. 
Since World War II, humor has changed quite a bit. It's a put-down. It's a put-down, and it's an ugly, nasty put-down. I think you've uh, called attention to the difference between the older comedians and the current ones, Otto, and I think that's important to go into. Well, it is. Uh, Will Rogers was a famous humorist, mm -hmm. although men of a previous generation didn't appreciate him. I did. I thought he was uh, awfully good, and he said he never met anyone he didn't like. Mm -hmm. And there were lots of variations of that comment, which weren't very pleasant later on. But Rogers meant it, and he brought comfort to an awful lot of people. During the Depression, it was astonishing, as you look back on it, the Depression of the 30s, that there were so many comedies yes. and that they dealt with people of wealth mm -hmm. and instead of evoking envy, jealousy, and anger and class hatred, they made everyone feel better. Yes. Because it was a vision of a kinder world, you might say. And uh, humor is supposed to make you feel better. Mm -hmm. I often think that uh, people who forget to laugh at their situation wind up in the laughing academy and if you can't laugh at what is happening you'll cry well think of the humor of men like Jack Benny as contrasted to the black humor of today well Benny was very funny and I remember once I had to write some gags for a series of commercials using puppets and uh, I think the client was the Merkel Meat Company of Chicago, and we had a fellow from the ad agency. On that occasion, I was out of the agency business and doing something else, named Mr. Stifle. Now, one of the skits for the puppet was the burglar puppet put a gun into the back of the other puppet, citizen puppet, and said, your money, uh, no, what was it, your Merkel Meat or your life? And the victim puppet didn't say anything for a while, just looked at the audience, and the burglar puppet said, uh, come on, come on, what are you waiting for? And he said, I'm thinking. Yeah, well, Jack Benny. that was Jack Benny's favorite gag. And uh, Mr. Stifle said, uh, well, when he heard the gag, he said, well, I appreciate New Yorker-styled humor myself, but are you sure the audience will get it? Somebody said they've got been getting it from Benny for 30 years. And he said, you mean you stole it? I said, no. I said, he stole it from us. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the great uh, comedians laughed at themselves. They were all losers. Yes. That was the big thing. And they called attention to the fact that you were not unlike them. Laurel and Hardy, for example, never popular with women, but uh, very popular with men, because uh, they came out as losers. They were always trying something that they were not capable of doing. Something that they wouldn't work. It, up. it didn't work. Yes. And... Uh, 
they enabled men to laugh at their own foibles, their own failures, their own weaknesses, and particularly in the Depression, when so many men uh, were not succeeding. They enjoyed Laurel and Hardy. Well, the American humor used to be quite elaborate. It, it was a narrative, it had a setting, it built up, and so mm -hmm. forth. And now we have uh, a discontin discontinuity. One-liners. We have one-liners that uh, come out of no place, and the next line is different and diverse, and it's something like the scrambled commercials that you begin to see now. The argument is that they have destroyed concentration, that there's no more linear thinking, that people are bored with a long story, they don't want to wait to hear the end of it, and so forth. It's the pressures of time, we're told, uh, but there, it's also a difference in attitude. There are hardly any of their jokes that you can make now about a group. It's an insult. Mm -hmm to laugh at anybody, even yourself. And uh, the racial political situation has gotten into humor. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're hearing scatological humor. We're hearing blue humor of a type that uh, Lenny Bruce introduced years yeah. ago in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And uh, a lot of this is very rough, mm -hmm. very rough, and a lot of it is not really basically very funny. No, no. The older humor, uh, because it was uh, an affectionate look at human failings, evoked a response from all men. And it also actually helped the relations between the groups. Yes. Because there was an affection, an affectionate underlay involved. What can well, you say now about the feminists? Mm -hmm. You can't make a joke involving a woman uh, that the feminists don't get very angry about. I was looking at the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday, I think it was, or today, there was a letter from a woman who was the president of a corporation mm -hmm. writing very, uh, in a very irritated little article about the fact that she receives a great many letters that begin, Dear Sir, business letters. And she says, after all, I'm not a sir, and there are many women like myself in high executive positions, and this is building up a great resentment in her. What a big problem. Yes, yes and the president of a company. Mm -hmm. I'd hate to work in a company like that. Mm -hmm. You'd have to be very careful what you said to her. Well, uh, I read the other day that the great classic of humor since World War II was Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, which I thought was a non-book. Well, it was about as funny as typhus typhoid fever. Yes. Uh, it was about a runaway boy who was uh, out of place in New York City, uh, which the uh, writer fairly accurately, I think, for the period portrayed as a fairly sinister place. Mm -hmm. And it was said to have replaced the great uh, similar classic about a boy, Tom Sawyer. Oh, no. And yet, uh, Tom Sawyer 
had a universality in uh, depicting a boy, a boy's daydreaming, a boy's activities. It uh, was something that uh, boys identified with for generations until, of course, for supposedly uh, racist attitudes. It's been barred now. It's been barred now, and people don't know about it. Uh, because he had the runaway slave with him, yes. Jim. And I'll never forget that professor, who at that time was with Montana, uh, and is now, I think, at uh, Cornell, I'm not sure, or Rochester, who held up Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer as great homosexual classics. Yes, yes. Now, it was a, that's a, it took a warped mind to think that one up. That was a, he's a great man. He, mm. he uh, was arrested in the drug bust later, <laughs> and he said it was a frame-up. They were mm. after him because of his unfashionable ideas, but his ideas were very fashionable in academia, and he was highly praised, and his, his yes. assessment has now gotten, is accepted as valid in academia. But you mentioned Freud. I, I read Freud's uh, monograph on wit and humor, mm -hmm. and I read it uh, right after World War II when I was on a bus, a Greyhound bus, going somewhere, from somewhere to somewhere, mm -hmm. forgotten now. And it made me laugh out loud while I was reading it. And I remember somebody on the bus got intrigued and said, what is it? And here it was, the essays of Sigmund Freud or something, and they looked at me with <laughs> awe. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was it was a, one of the most unconscious funniest things I've ever read in my life he had a series of jokes which he quoted and I remember one of them uh, they were almost all Jewish jokes in fact they were all Jewish very Jewish jokes one was about a marriage broker who was trying to convince a young man of some substance that this girl who had no money should be just the one for him. Well, he said, you know, you don't really... He said she has no money. Well, he said, money isn't everything. What you want is a good girl, a virtuous girl, a girl who will be able to cook, and this and that. And then he showed the picture, and he said, what, well, she's cross-eyed. Well, he said, now, he talked that away. He talked away the fact that she had a limp. He talked away the fact she had a hump. And then the man found some other defect, and the broker said, what do you want, perfection? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> and at the end of all this, and I laughed at these Jewish jokes, which are undoubtedly old, because Freud, when they, by the time a joke gets in print, it's usually at least a generation old. <laughs> now, at any rate, at the end of it, his conclusion was, that the reason you laugh at a joke is in relief because you see the point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> I, I thought it was the funniest thing in the book. <laughs> it was hilarious. No more sense of humor than a doorknob. <laughs> you know, at our staff breakfast, I believe, this morning, I was mentioning uh, Mark Twain's letter to his brother, I believe, when he went to Virginia City. And he wrote his brother, and he said, This is without doubt a sinful city, the wickedest city in all of America. It's no place for a good Presbyterian. Therefore, I have stopped being a good Presbyterian. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that's funny. Well, the Depression had jokes. I remember this story about the fellow who left home looking for a job in the city, and they didn't hear from him for six or eight months. And then they got one of those one-penny postcards. Remember them? Mm -hmm. One-penny postcards. And written in pencil in the back of the postcard to his brother, said, Dear Jim, meet me under the railroad trestle tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. Bring a shirt, a pair of pants, a tie, and a cap. And it said, P.S., I've got shoes. <laughs> this, I'd forgotten the, the flavor of uh, the Depression jokes. That is a vintage one. <laughs> Choice. It came out. It was part of that period. Yes. We, I can't forget all those old jokes and I remember my grandfather Scott telling jokes about of World War One vintage and earlier and they were all uh, fairly sophisticated I mean the, the, the one about the Frenchman or the French the, the uh, man in France who had a hat store an Englishman came by and looked in the window at the, all the hats and then went in and ordered what he thought was a black hat in French and, but he said instead of un noir chapeau he said un noir capeau and in French that's a condom a black condom and the proprietor said well monsieur he thought he was insane he said perhaps you could try the pharmacy or some other place but we don't handle those objects and the Englishman drew himself up and said nonsense they're all in the window I see them well, then the Frenchman thought he's, he's uh, maybe he's a, a mild lunatic, and I'll, I'll humor him. He said, well, we, uh, we could send out for one, if you have to have it. But I think the black, he said, is very rare. Why does it have, the Englishman said it has to be black. He said, well, why should it be black? He said, my wife just died. He said, oh, what beautiful sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> well, told with great aplomb, and the whole thing hinged not on the sex so much as on the difference between the two countries, the two cultures, and the language. Yes, uh, one of the things I realized early was how different the sense of humor is in different cultures. Armenian humor that I grew up with, and Nasser Eddin stories, the stories of the dumb Turk. Oh. Uh, in, uh, among the Turks, Nasser Eddin is the all-wise uh, Turk. I see. Not the Armenians, he's the simpleton. Yes, he's the incredibly stupid person. Men among the Chinese in my years in Chinatown, they had a particular sense of humor which was quite different. And the American Indians, my ears among them. The Irish sense of humor is different than the American humor. Mm -hmm. It's a bloody sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was a very famous joke about the Irishman who went to fight in the English army in World War One. 
and he was brought back without arms, without legs, without eyes, in a basket. And his wife, who didn't know what had happened to him, went over and looked at him and said, Johnny, I hardly know you. <laughs> and they thought that was so funny, they made a song out of it. <laughs> yes, I'd forgotten that. Well, there was one Chinese story. This goes back to the late 30s, which uh, is good in English, too. Uh, to get the point of it, you have to realize the um, Chinese are the original and the ancient pragmatists. For example... Uh, when I was on the reservation, one of the things I learned that used to drive in the 30s the FHA people crazy was this. If an Indian died in the house, it was believed his ghost would haunt it permanently. So they took him out. So they well, they would take him out, but if he sure. died before they could, they'd light a match and burn up the house. Oh, my. And on some of the reservations, the federal officer would be racing whenever he saw smoke to try to put the fire out <laughs> and save the federal loan. <laughs> the Chinese uh, had a similar belief that if a person died in a house or an apartment, uh, the place would be haunted. But, pragmatically, they said for 30 days, Oh. So they would move out for 30 days. And then it was all right. Then it was all right. In the San Francisco Chinese uh, YMCA, uh, someone drowned once. So for 30 days, the pool was closed by them. Huh. So that nobody would have any trouble with the ghost. I see. Uh, well, at any rate, things always had a time sequence. And uh, according to this story, this uh, drunken uh, white woman was leaning out of her apartment window to look at something down the street, and she lost her balance and fell down into an open garbage can. Mm -hmm. And just then, two elderly Chinese rounded the corner and saw the woman in the garbage can, and they shook their heads in dismay. And one said to the other, Americans, very wasteful. This woman good for ten more years. Now, <laughs> that doesn't have the same flavor in English that it, doesn't have, that it does have in Chinese, or did in those days. But that <laughs> caught something about the Chinese pragmatism very tellingly. Well, there's, it's true. There's different in every culture. One of the reasons the German army decided that it had lost World War I was that the morale of the troops, and particularly in the last year, was very poor. And they admired the English fighting men very much, and they said also that one of the earmarks of the English was their sense of humor. And they took, and this was in a, a German army manual to, for officers, who were advised to inculcate a sense of humor into the troops, and they had a cartoon by Bruce Bairnsfeather, a very famous cartoonist, which showed one English private in a great uh, 
shell hole. And another one saying to him, what caused this hole, do you suppose? And the first one said, mice. <laughs> and they reproduced this together with the dialogue. And then underneath it in italics, they said it was really not mice, but a shell. <laughs> Well, one of the problems today is that when you turn on television, you don't get humor anymore. Well, you do, but it's a different kind. Yes, now, that's right. Now, the uh, a playwright, whose name I can't think of the moment, wrote a one-act play, very interesting play, called Barclay Square, which played in the 30s. Only one act. And the point of the play, or the theme of the play, was that a wealthy businessman in London in the 1880s or so found in an old book a way to summon a demon. And he chose Haha Laba, the god of laughter, on the theory that that would be the most benign that he could summon. And when Hahalaba appeared and said, well, what do you want? He said, all I want is the newspaper for tomorrow. Figuring that he would be able to anticipate the market and make his fortune. Unfortunately, when he saw the newspaper for the next day, it had his death listed. And in the, in the wings, you heard the laughter of Hahalaba. Yes. And the point is that you are what you laugh at. Mm -hmm. And laughter is an instrument of cruelty and contempt mm -hmm. as well as enjoyment. Yes. The sh we are seeing the dark side of laughter today in yes. the United States. And the dark side of laughter is what is being accepted at all jokes. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I told a couple of jokes at a dinner party in, uh, in the East one night, and there was a, uh, it was a mixed company, and there was the young wife of a young executive present. And she came over to me afterwards and said, do you realize that one of those stories you told was a very sexist story? And I don't think you should be telling stories like that. And I said, does your husband know that you're talking to me about this? And she looked surprised. And I said, I don't think he would be pleased with you if he knows that you came over to scold me. And, but she obviously felt well equipped to do it. A perfect right to tell an older man how he should conduct himself, the social occasion. Yes. A very strange turn of events yes. that's going on here. And the sadism that we see in the movies is being reflected in our humor. Very much so. It is ugly, vicious humor. It's more than a put-down. Venomous. Well, if you make 
a figure of fun out of the president if you portray the president as a clown mm -hmm. now we can't do this to the prime minister of england or to any other country various national groups would rise up in great wrath if we began to denigrate the leaders of other countries but we have diminished the office of president by diminishing the office we've diminished ourselves we've diminished our nation and i think that uh, humor is worth more attention than it's been receiving yes very definitely so and i think humor is a good index to the spiritual condition of a people one aspect of the subject of humor has always been a, of concern to me in Psalm 2 we are told of God's laughter as he views the pretensions of men and yet we've had a vein in the Western world within Christendom of uh, churchmen who have felt that uh, levity is somehow ungodly and this goes back to uh, Greek Neoplatonic spirituality which has very much warped uh, some Christians so that uh, humor is frowned on and it is seen as somehow untenable this is cropped up in both the uh, Catholic and uh, Protestant churches periodically and you had uh, people who felt that a solemnity of a pompous officious sort uh, represented godliness and that humor was somehow uh, undignified and indicative of a lack of intelligence or a lack of seriousness but I think uh, to the contrary some of the finest minds uh, within Christendom have had a good sense of humor I think also we need to recognize that uh, humor is a necessity spiritually because a good sense of humor means that you don't take yourself seriously it means that you laugh at yourself and your own foibles and follies and pretensions so a lack of a sense of humor can lead very directly to Phariseeism and has again and again no question uh, it's a serious defect yes it's a, a really a serious defect because it means that you you lack a certain sense of proportion. Yes. What is uh, what 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 becomes funny is uh, what is inherently disproportionate or ridiculous mm -hmm. in the situation. I, I mentioned before that the humor you know runs in uh, uh, fashions. There are fashions and jokes. You remember the knock knock jokes. Yes. Uh, and then there was there was a period I think in the uh, late 50s of uh, early 60s of Colonel Culpepper stories mm. and 
they were just ahead of the civil rights movement, but uh, part of the civil rights argument. That Life magazine sent a photographer and a reporter down to the South to interview people, and they interviewed Colonel Culpepper. And they said, uh, Colonel Culpepper, are you in favor of desegregation? And he said, no, sir. And they said, are you in favor of segregation? He said, no, sir. They said, well, what are you in favor of? He said, slavery. <laughs> and there was a whole stream of these. And they, yes. were, they were devastating in their effect. <laughs> they, they interviewed a black man. They, they were driving along, and that fellow said, stop the car, there's a black man, he's behind a plow. Let's go over and ask him what he thinks. So they went over, and this was in the heart of uh, Georgia, and they said to the black man behind the plow, can we ask you a couple of questions? And he said, well, he didn't know, but maybe they could. He said, well, what do you think of the community here, and how are you being treated? And uh, he said, well, what's that thing you're holding in front of my face? He said, well, this is a tape recorder, and he said, we're going to play this tape, and your answers when we get back up north. You can say anything you like, and nobody around here is going to know what you're telling us, he said. I can say anything I like? He said, yes. So he leaned closer to the microphone, and he said, help. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember uh, during the Roosevelt years and uh, Truman years, a story that was told here in California and in those days, the farmers felt that the Democrats had saved them. So you had seen a switch in 32 of the San Joaquin Valley farmers who had been overwhelmingly Republican into the Democratic fold so that uh, for a while you were uh, afraid to admit in some areas that you were a Republican. At any rate, this minister who was a Republican was out uh, calling one hot summer day and he was on the uh, in the Fresno area and the temperature was running 100 to 105 and his car broke down so he didn't see any cars in sight and started to walk back perspiring and finally, a farmer came along in a pickup and gave him a ride. And uh, the farmer talked about the upcoming election and uh, started damning the Republicans. And the pastor interjected a word, and he said, Now, friend, we mustn't be too hasty in our condemnation of everyone. I myself happen to be a Republican, and I think there's a good case for the Republican Party. And the farmer reached across the man, opened the door, and said, Get out! You call yourself a preacher, and you're the enemy of your people if you're a Republican. So the poor farmer got out there, and the hundred-plus temperature, first, uh, the minister got out and uh, continued to walk and he thought when another pickup or car comes along I'll keep my mouth shut and uh, before long another farmer came along in a pickup and 
gave him a ride and uh, started talking about the election and the minister's only comment was, well, you may be right, friend, you may be right. Uh, so he didn't get thrown out, but then they came abreast of a melon patch and the farmer said, uh, why don't you uh, duck under that fence and uh, get us a melon. It's an awfully hot day and I'm thirsty. And uh, melon would taste good. And the farmer said, now, the minister said, well, friend, I'm a minister. And I believe in God's law and it says thou shalt not steal. And the man interrupted him angrily and he said, now look, I'm giving you a ride and all I'm saying, get one measly melon. If you don't want to get the melon, get out and walk. And he said, don't be hasty. Don't be hasty. I'll get it. So he started crawling under the fence, and uh, since he was on his knees, he figured it was a good time to pray. So he prayed. He said, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Only five minutes a Democrat and already a thief. <laughs> Uh, I like the ending better than the beginning. <laughs> Sometimes, some of these things stick in your mind for years. I remember yeah. that Eli Wallach, the uh, actor, was raised on the east side in New York when that was poor and Jewish. And he said his only memories of his mother all through his childhood, he said that she was always over the, the wash basin washing clothes. And he came in one day and he said, Hey, Ma, he said, did you see in the papers John D. Rockefeller died? And she said, he should care with his money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I think one of the uh, things that we should make note of is the relationship historically of uh, humor with morality. The classic example of that is Aesop's Fables. There's no relationship between Aesop's Fables and the Aesop of Greek history. Mm -hmm. His name survived, and uh, Aesop's Fables as we know them are medieval fables uh, coming from monks. Mm. And uh, the accounts of them are very interesting because the originals have been traced back to India and to China, folk tales that have traveled by word of mouth around the world. Traveled by word of mouth around the world. And some scholars have traced the individual ones, written monographs on them. Very interesting. Mm. But the end result is what is very, very telling because in their final form, as they passed through the Christian matrix, mm -hmm. they were honed to the um, magnificent format they now have, mm -hmm. which used to be in all the uh, textbooks when we went to school. Oh, yes. I grew up on Aesop's oh, Fables. King, King Log and the Frogs. And, yes. And uh, a whole host of them. Yes. Right? And now ask any school child and he'll look at you blankly. He's never heard of Aesop's Fables. But they were not only funny, but they had a moral point. 
they showed folly as ludicrous. Mm -hmm. And that was very, very important in the upbringing, you and I and those of our generation and countless generations before us had. Yes. They were a link. Yes. They are a link with the basic patterns of behavior. Yes. And you have now kids who don't know the difference. No. Just as we spoke at an earlier tape about people who don't understand what they're sinning, we have people now who don't know when they're ridiculous. Yes. And this means that the ridiculous is parading around without self-consciousness. And and uh, <clears throat> look at the uh, the business of trying to create a genderless language. Mm -hmm. Do you realize that there isn't a genderless language in the whole world? No. And in the whole history of the world, mm -hmm. there has never been a language without gender. I feel that uh, something should be done to restore Aesop's fables uh, to schools, to Christian schools, because they do give you a perspective on life. Now, there's nothing uh, mentioned in them about Christianity. Not directly. But there's a moral perspective <clears throat> in all of them that is totally Christian. No, that's true. And humor is very refreshing because you see yourself in it. Yes. It's, it's, uh, <clears throat> we, we all fall into uh, the pit from time to mm -hmm. time. And it's good to be reminded of it. Well, when people take themselves too seriously, when they are humorless, they find it difficult to forgive themselves their blunders. Well, then uh, it's taken as a sign of hostility. Mm -hmm. It's now taken as a sign of hostility. Since we have racial politics, we can no longer tell jokes about the races. Yes, I have mentioned on more than one occasion the fact that I grew up in a Swedish community. And in the 30s, there was a radio comedian, uh, Ole Olsen, Yes, I remember him. spoke uh, very broken English. And it wasn't it after 1950, what? you remember that? It was a movie he made. Oh, uh, that I didn't know. Yeah, but and, and 1950 was the future. Mm -hmm. Everything was going to come out of machines, uh -huh. including babies. He said, I like the old way best. Well, nobody enjoyed Ole Olsen more than the Swedes of did. Of course. They'd look forward to it. You go to school the night after his, he was on radio, and that was all that the Swedish kids were talking about, with delight and imitating him. Well, now, today they would say that's racist humor and is yeah. uh, poking fun at a people, but it was an affectionate uh, thing. Well, the last stronghold of ethnic humor is the Catskills and Florida. Mm -hmm. where most of the humor is Jewish and anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. And they laugh, and I've listened to it, and I've laughed with them, because I thought some of the jokes were very funny. Yes. And I heard uh, Bill Robinson in the Cotton Club in New York, and he was a very great entertainer. He was a great tap dancer. He tap danced up a small stepladder, up one side and down the other. And while he tap danced to the music, he told jokes at the same time. And I'll never forget one joke that he told. 
about, and I've forgotten now uh, what the term was for his race, whether it was a colored man or a Negro. I, I've forgotten. So in those days, never black. That was considered an insult. Uh, was driving a car from New York City to Florida, and he went through a red light in a town called Keep On Going, Georgia. And he was, imme- <laughs> he was immediately stopped by a, a policeman who said, what's the matter with you going through that red light? And he said, oh, he said, I just saw a white lady going through the green light, and I figured the red light was for us colored folks. <laughs> and he got the point across very neatly lots of things can be said in the guise of humor yeah. and lots of things are said in the guise of humor yes but and the same thing is true of course in writing writing without wit is witless mm-hmm. yes and there's nothing worse. Psychiatry is humorless. There is no room in psychiatry for a, uh, a joke. Everything has a secret meaning. Yes. And you know the famous one, of course, where one psychiatrist said good morning to the other, and the other one said, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very uh, good. Very telling, too. Uh, and it means, by the way, that the world of total meaning has been transferred from the mind of God to the mind of man. That's its significance. So that uh, psychiatry is humanism gone mad. Just about. Yes. That's a very good definition. Mm-hmm. Because the assumption is that one man can read another man's mind also that your mind in its every manifestation its dreams or an expression is infallible it's an infallible index to your subconscious not so so that infallibility has been transferred from god to man well you know for a while they were saying that you subconsciously recorded everything Mm -hmm. and that that could be recalled under hypnosis Further experiments have disclosed the fact that hypnosis simply uh, evokes fantasies. Mm-hmm. Your mind does not recall everything because you are not omnipotent. No. And you are not infallible. Mm-hmm. And your mind is imperfect. Yes. But they haven't publicized that kind of conclusion. And they still continue to operate on the assumption that you're. Uh, psychoanalysis will reveal the truth about you from what you say and what you dream and so on. Well, when humor in the psychoanalytic jargon is evidence of hostility, if you're making fun of some group because you're hostile to them. So uh, I remember uh, various jokes in which you would simply switch the target around so that it wouldn't be the one you're talking to. They would laugh as long as it was a third party that was the object of of merriment, but not their own. But humor is not. It's a a safety valve. Mm -hmm. It's a release. Mm -hmm. Well, getting back to this type of psychiatric analysis, 
uh, it assumes an absolute and total meaning and that everything you say is revelatory of something or is concealing something and therefore is revelatory. Everything has significance. Yes. The Rorschach ink blot test. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> a series of ink blots would be shown to a person. Right. And you were to say what it was, and that would reveal something about your character. Yes. But if you looked at a particular ink blot that didn't look like anything, and you said, it doesn't look like anything to me, what are you concealing? Well, you know, the famous one, and that is that the fellow saw something sexual in every ink blot, without exception. And then when he was leaving, said, by the way, Doc, where did you get all those dirty pictures? Yes. But, uh, and I had a, a professor of psychology tell me many years ago that his worst student was one who didn't see any sex in any of the ink blots. And he said, <laughs> he said I regarded him with deep suspicion there uh, ever after. Well, I thought that was funny. Yes. Well, it's no wonder that uh, as a result of the influence of uh, Freud, humor has taken a very sick turn. It has political and racial and ethnic significance today that it didn't have at a time when racial and ethnic and political jokes were much more widely told than they are now. Yes. And that's an interesting thing. The American people had great freedom of speech in the 20s and 30s. Since World War II, that area of free speech has been progressively narrowed. And it's an interesting thing that as the area of speech has been progressively narrowed for reasons that only the social scientists can make sound reasonable, the humor of the country has gotten uglier. Now, Presumably, the social scientists and all these new and liberating laws and equalizing laws and so forth would have led to a kinder and gentler nation, to quote Mr. Bush, and would have led to a lot more open and easy uh, fraternity and uh, humor. But it hasn't. We mm -hmm. have more dissension today than we've ever had before. We have more divisiveness than we've ever had before. And we have humor that's uglier than we've ever had before. I thought the sick jokes that appeared in the wake of the nuclear accident in the Soviet Union and the sick jokes that, that appeared in the wake of the Ethiopian <coughs> starving Oh, there were a whole flood of them. There were a whole flood of them. And they appeared within days of these stories. There's an underground humor that circulates through the United States, which is, it began quite some time back, you know, that the, the real, outside of that, how did you like the show, Mrs. Lincoln? Uh, it was, was a mild one. Uh, compared to the things that have been coming out since then. And you really wonder. It's really enough to, to uh, make you wonder because there is a dark side to humor. Yes, and it's the dark side we see mainly in our time. 
Well, I think there's a very, very important place uh, in the Christian perspective uh, for humor. I think one of the things that uh, struck me uh, very forcibly recently was that someone when I was on a trip said that uh, they wished they could sit in on our staff breakfasts because they had heard from so many people about the uh, both intelligent discourse as well as the humor of those meetings. Well, they're and somewhat like Mad Hatter tea parties, you know. <clears throat> The conversation is never organized, and but what surprises me is that sometimes some uh, solid things come out. Yes. Well, this person said, you never find any good humor anywhere, and it makes you feel envious that anyone can uh, sit in on a happy uh, exchange. Well, I think that's true. We have professional humorists, and our comedians, with, I think Fred Allen was one of the last who wrote his own jokes. Uh, now they all have writers who uh, brainstorm jokes. Well, I believe uh, Fred Allen was really outstanding and his ability to laugh at himself was phenomenal. Well, I always liked his definition of a, a vice president on the networks. He said every morning a vice president comes to work and they place a molehill on his desk and it's his job to, to build it into a mountain by five o'clock. Yes. Well, uh, too many of the contemporary younger humorists are not only salacious, but they act as though they have an even dirtier story that they'd like to tell you. And they're just plain repulsive. It's interesting. I don't know how things are going in other countries. Uh, whether the humor in other countries is going the same way as ours, but I have a feeling that it is. Yes. Uh, I read something in, I th I'm not sure, but I think it was in Punch recently, where the writer said, has there ever been a generation that has endured as much disruption and stress as we live under today? In, in the ordinary turn of events, the velocity of traffic, the calls upon our attention, the harassment of the media, the noise, mm -hmm. the movement, the uh, elements of discomfort, the demands on our time. I mean, for instance, the poster that you got, uh, that you're not going to give me a lie detector test, or if you do, I'll turn you in. <laughs> and uh, the uh, whole business of constantly feeling that the government is after you, directing you, harassing you, instructing you, mm -hmm. educating you, and so forth. There is one area, and we're running out of time, of 
humor that is remarkable in our day, the cartoonists. Ah. Uh, some of them, like uh, Hagar the Horrible, are re very good. And uh, I think, uh, for example, the cartoonist for the Wall Street Journal, he had a classic recently, and I'll close with this one. It showed uh, a man at uh, the gates of heaven and St. Peter looking at the records and shaking his head at the man and saying, I know that uh, you were told the meek shall inherit the earth, but uh, the law doesn't say anything about the apathetic. You would like that. Yes. <laughs> well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ rules dot com